Good morning, everyone. It's good to see all of you. Hope you're doing well. Sorry for the cold weather. I won't do it again, I promise. All right, before we, uh, we jump in, let's have a time of prayer, and we'll ask God for, uh, for his spirit and his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and as we approach it this morning to learn, we pray that you would uh, guide our time, that you would guide the thoughts of our hearts and our meditations as we dwell on your word, as we dwell on the Mosaic Covenant. We pray that you would lead us rightly, that we would know you in truth, and that we would be pointed to Jesus, our King and our Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I know we have a couple visitors today. Who uh, And this is Thomas. Um, but we've been talking about covenant theology for the last decade. Um, and believe it or not, we're getting close to being done with the Mosaic Covenant. And by close, I mean it could be anywhere from one to four more weeks. Um, but to me, that's close <laughs> in relative terms. Um, and there's, there's still a couple more things to talk about in the Mosaic Covenant. And I'm still trying to decide if they're worth it, um, if they're worth spending time on. But... Something that definitely has been worth spending time on is looking at the Mosaic Covenant through a particular lens, right? We're talking about the Old Testament, pretty much all of it, right? There's a lot of books in the Old Testament. There's a lot of things going on in the Old Testament, and the Lord is doing a lot of things uh, through the Mosaic Covenant. Um, and so we've tried to keep, keep it narrow, right? We're talking about a lot of details, but we still want to keep the big picture in focus, which in particular is how does the Mosaic Covenant teach us about Jesus? Um, and so we've been looking at it through the lens of, okay, how is the Mosaic Covenant teaching us about the promised seed? Right? We know Jesus is going to show up. We know that he's going to be um, our savior. He's going to be the one to crush the head of the serpent. But the Mosaic Covenant starts to unpack and reveal, here's what that looks like uh, in actual, tangible terms. So what are some of the things that we've already said? What things is the promised seed going to do? And what kind of person is he going to be? What have we learned so far? It's going to fulfill the law perfectly. That's right. Why is he going to fulfill the law perfectly? Okay, because he's the second Adam. But through the Mosaic Covenant specifically, what does the Mosaic Covenant teach about Israel? Jonathan? That they're not perfect. That they're not perfect. Exactly. Right? The reason why it's so important that Jesus will keep the law perfectly is that Israel can't. And remember, the Mosaic Covenant is, is temporal. That means it's limited. That means if you keep the Mosaic Covenant perfectly, what you get is to stay in the land. You don't get eternal life. You don't get everlasting bliss in heaven. You get just a long life in the land of Canaan. That's what the Mosaic Covenant promises if you keep it perfectly. So God is as if it's, it's as if God is saying, okay, let's let's play out salvation but on, on limited small terms to see if you know you can fulfill this. It's like if your your son comes up and says, Hey, I want a dog, and you say, All right, first let's get a gecko. Um, and then we'll talk about a dog. And if you kill the gecko, then we know you're not ready for a dog. Um, in a sort of not similar but sort of similar way, God is saying, All right, you want to earn heaven. 
Well, first earn the land. And if you can earn the land, then we can talk about you earning heaven. And then Israel made two gold, a golden calf and bowed down before it and worshipped it and broke the covenant. Right? They committed adultery on their wedding night. So clearly, there has to be another way. They need someone who is going to keep the law perfectly. What other things is the mediator? I just revealed one of them. What other things is the promised seed going to do? Okay, he's going to intercede for the people. He's going to be a mediator. Someone who isn't Marge, because I know y'all have been in this Sunday school. What else? What kind of offices is the promised seed going to carry? Jonathan? All right. Yeah, he's going to be a prophet and a priest and a king. What's it mean that Jesus is going to be a prophet? Does that mean he's going to, he's really good at telling the future? Yeah, he's the word incarnate. Because what's a prophet all about? It's, he's about the word. He is a, a, a messenger, a, a man who has been sent with a message to God's people. So when Jesus shows up, right, one of the first things he starts doing is proclaiming a message. Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And because Jesus is the prophet, right, he is the word itself made incarnate, that means there's no middle, there's nobody in the middle anymore. Hebrews 1 talks about how in the former ages, God has spoken through prophets and in many different ways, right? There's all these different avenues, these intermediaries, these people in the middle delivering God's message. But now, he's spoken to us through his son. It's as if there's no more gap, right, between God's word and us. There's no one playing telephone in the middle. Now, we're getting the straight word of God through Jesus. Um, And even then, it's... (laughs) You read the parables, you're like, I have no idea what's going on. It's still hard to understand, but it's because we need the Spirit still. But what about priests? What does it mean that Jesus is a priest? He presents the sacrifice of himself to God. That's right. Yeah, he offers the sacrifice of himself. That's what the priests were all about in the Old Testament, right? They were the those who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. Jonathan? In a way, I'm not sure if this actually defines him as a priest, but there was the um, temple incidents. Okay. The time when he flipped all those virgins out of their... Yeah. No, I think you're, you're correct. That is Jesus acting as a priest, because what did the priests do in the Old Testament? They guarded the temple. They were the the tabernacle guardians, the temple guardians. They were the ones who encamped around the tabernacle, providing a physical barrier between them and the people, or between the tabernacle and the people. And we're going through Malachi, right, and Brett's sermon series. And God's indictment against the priests is that they have not protected the temple. They have let profane sacrifices be offered. So when Jesus comes into the temple and finds it being profaned, He does what any good priest would do. He (laughs) defends it, right? Because it's a matter of God's honor. 
So that means that when someone says, well, WWJD, you know, what would Jesus do? Well, Jesus would flip tables and crack whips at people. You should stop and say, well, (laughs) that doesn't mean that I should necessarily go around cracking whips at people because Jesus is defending God's honor, right? That's something that, that, G? Well, he did that not as being a priest of the line of Levi, but being from Melchizedek or of the order of Melchizedek so that he was outside the line of priesthood within the people of Israel Mm -hmm. to give them Yeah. Yeah, Jesus was not a Levite, right? He was Melchizedekian, um, so to speak. He was a priest of the order of Melchizedek. And what happens when you change the priesthood? The law changes. The law changes. Yeah. If you have a different priesthood, you have a different covenant. So because Jesus is not a Levite, that means that the covenant that Jesus is a priest of is not the same as the Mosaic covenant. It's different. Um, And Hebrews, we talked about this last week, goes on this rant about how much better the new covenant is than the old covenant. Because the old covenant could not make perfect the people who offered sacrifices, right? The blood of bulls and goats cannot atone for sin. And yet it teaches us that blood is required for atonement. And it teaches us that there has to be a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus is the Melchizedekian priest who offers that perfect sacrifice as a mediator of a better covenant. And he was raised on the eighth day. If you remember that from a couple weeks ago. Um, The eighth day means new creation. The eighth day means the inauguration or the, the, the beginnings of the new creation. Okay, so that's our review, right? That's where we've been with the, with the Mosaic Covenant. We've talked a lot about these things, and we're getting close. I'm, just ignore me when I say that, because I have no idea how close we are actually to being done with the Mosaic Covenant. But we're getting close um, to being done with it. But there's still one more office that we need to talk about um, when it comes to the Mosaic Covenant and how it applies to Jesus, how it teaches us about Jesus. And that's the office of kings. Um, so real, real quick, let's talk big picture about kings in general. Right, what's, what's the job of a king or a government or civil authority, right? What's his job? Yes? To protect the people from enemies inside and out. Yeah, to protect the people from enemies both inside and outside. Charlie? to rule. Yeah. Which means what? It's to direct the health and well-being, the purpose and outcome of a people for themselves. Okay. Jonathan? So, we don't know what happened to salt. Sorry, salt, right? What do you mean? We're talking about kings. Yes, kings, the kings in general. So I'm not talking about necessarily only Israel, but... God rooted Saul from his position because Saul had forsaken God. But what happens when the government, the ruler, starts acting more like a predator and less like a protector? What does God do about that? It's a good question. Um, 
Let's get to that in a little bit. I think Israel's ever had a government like that. <laughs> a government that's predatory? Oh, no, they have. Um, but we'll get to that. I think it's a good question, but we'll get to that. First, let's, let's focus on government and, and kings in general, right, and their job. So um, they, they protect the people, right? Charlie said they rule, which means they, they carry authority, right? They have proper authority. It's not self-given authority. Scripture is very clear that civil rulers have been put in place by God. And that God has invested in them the authority to rule and to, uh, to protect the citizens from both external and internal threats. Which means government has the right and responsibility from God to create laws um, to protect the citizens. right? To maintain good and proper society and order. To reward the righteous and to punish the wicked. In a perfect world, right? that's... That's the goal of government. Another, you could ask, well, in a perfect world, would we need government? That's another question. But generally speaking, right, that means that whether or not a government or a king recognizes God, their authority comes from him. So even if they don't acknowledge God, even if they don't realize it, it's still true. It's not, oh, they only have authority when they actually recognize God as, as king. No, they have it from the Lord, and that means that God is watching, right? that God will hold them accountable for their actions, whether or not they realize it. Um, and that means that this applies not just to monarchies. Right? It's not like uh, Queen Elizabeth, she's the only monarch left in the world, so she's, that's, the, this only applies to, wait, she's dead? Oh. <laughs> okay, well, long live the king, I guess, I don't know. Um, okay, now, well, never mind. <laughs> the point being, right, this applies to every government in the world, which means whether you're in a democracy, a republic, a monarchy, or even in a dictatorship, the ruler's authority is derived from God. So Peter's command is, honor the emperor. And that's, he can rightly command that, even though the emperor in Peter's time was Nero, right? Who was known for his bad habit of lighting Christians on fire. That's the guy that Peter says, honor him for the sake of his position, Right, for the sake of the authority that he has received from God. Now, obviously, that means that God is still king above all kings. That if a ruler makes a law that is against God, we don't follow that because there's a higher authority we appeal to. Um, but still, the Lord has put earthly rulers into place in order to work out his rule right, and his dominion in a sinful world. Does anyone remember when civil authority was first instituted? We've talked about this in this Sunday school class. Noah's covenant. Noah's covenant. Okay, there's actually one, there's one before that even. But I think you're right. That's when it gets institutionalized. John? Well, the first time the sword was used was in the Garden of Eden. Okay. I'm talking about God instituting civil government. God instituting justice by man. Man doing justice against man. 
And it has to do with the first... What was that? Yeah. Yeah. When, when Cain kills Abel and spills his blood, the Lord, the Lord has justice, right? He puts a mark on Cain, and Cain is like, well, this is too much for me to bear. And God said, well, calm down. Um, and also, he institutes man instituting justice, right? If man sheds blood, by man shall his blood be shed. Uh, in other words, now it's, it's on man's responsibility to, to work justice for themselves. In the Noahic Covenant, that gets expanded, right? That gets institutionalized. That civil government is, is part of how God preserves this created order, this world, until he comes again to judge the world. So until the king comes back, now earthly kings rule, right, on, in God's stead, working justice in this, uh, in this earth. Now obviously, they're not perfect. They are very much not perfect. And they can turn to very bad things very quickly. Um, but that we should also remember that because their authority is derived from God, that means that there is still an ultimate authority who's going to hold them accountable. Um, so that's big picture. Right? That's kings and governments, big picture. Now let's talk about Israel. Is there anything unique about the kings of Israel compared to the kings of the nations? Was that? Okay, the kings of Israel selected by God. John? Was their um, maybe not their manifest intent that God pointed out to them that they were rejecting Him as King, okay. wanting an earthly King, mm-hmm. and then He also told them about the responsibilities that would come to them as a people to their King, as far as taxes and um, burdens that the King would uh, place upon them as a result of wanting an earthly King instead of. Rejecting the heavenly king. Okay. But how does that make them unique from the kings of the nations? Because when, when Israel, I mean, you're right, when Israel asks for a king, they say, well, we want a king that's like the nations, so that we will be like the nations. What, is that, what does that mean? What are they asking for? What? Power. Okay, power. You're asking for trouble. <laughs> well... <laughs> Truer words were never spoken. They wanted a visible king. They wanted somebody they could see and control and push and pull. Sure. Yeah, a visible king, because a visible king. Yeah. Sure. Dave? They didn't want to submit to God, God's authority. They wanted their own authorities, but they didn't have to look to him for what they wanted. Mm-hmm. Okay, they wanted they wanted out from under God's authority. But key in on the fact that they want to be like the nations. Because think about Israel and how God sets Israel up. He is he's consistently said that Israel is different and that he is going to make them a different kind of nation and people than the world. He says, you are going to be my treasured possession on the earth. How I deal with you is going to be differently than how I deal with the world. 
I'm going to administer my rule differently to you, Israel, and you are going to have to be different from the world. And so Israel can't eat pork. They can't eat shrimp. They have to keep clean cleanliness laws. They have to follow a lot of regulations, all so that they will not look like the world. And what Israel says is, actually, this is hard. We want to look like the world. Because everyone's looking at us and laughing because we're not eating bacon with our breakfast. Now, it's exaggerated, but you can imagine it, it can feel bad to look different. Right? We, none of us want to stand out in a crowd. None of us really want to be super different. And yet that's what the Lord calls Israel to do, is to not look like the nations. And that makes them look weak. Because the other nations look and say, well, they have no king. They do. It's God. But if they had an earthly king, that they would feel safer. They'd feel stronger. They would feel like they have more power. So that's what they say, right? We want a king so that we look like the nations and a king who will go out and fight our battles for us. Those are the two things that Israel asks for. So knowing all of that, right, knowing what they ask for and knowing that that's not what they're going to get, what is God, how are the kings of Israel unique compared to the kings of the nations? Does anyone know the particular commands that God gives to kings? Meditate on the law. Uh huh. What else? John? Basically, the same things we're commanded. They have to be righteous. Okay. They have to um, give just uh, decisions. They have to use justice in their uh, rule. Mm-hmm. They want to. Uh, Show uh, partiality. Okay. You're right, but those are all things that would apply to earthly kings as well. There's a few things that God commands specifically to Israelite kings that is meant to set them apart from kings of the nations. Think about think about the royal family of England, right? What's what are the symbols of their rule? Physical symbols. Scepters. Scepters, crowns, crown jewels, right? These these objects of incredible wealth, right? Gold and diamonds and rubies and, and bedecked in all this wealth and glory. And here's what God says to Israelite kings. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself will cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him. He shall read it in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brother's that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left. Right, so no horses, no wives, not, no, don't, not a lot of horses, not a lot of wives, not a lot of gold, a copy of the book of the law, don't lift your heart above your brothers. If you flip all of those and take the opposite, that's what earthly kings do. 
right? That's just, that's what they do. They acquire lots of horses. They acquire lots of wives. Why? Because that's political power. They acquire lots of gold. Why? Because it's the privilege of power, right? It's their position. It's that they are the king. They get all this gold and wealth. They lift their hearts above their brothers. They think that they're better because they're rulers, right? They are high up here, and the common people are down here, and God says, not so. Not with the kings of Israel. One sec, Jonathan. Instead, they will be with the people. They will not lift up their hearts. They will not glory themselves. They will not clothe themselves in gold and in wives and in horses. Right, so they will, they will look different because they will be humble. All right, Jonathan? So, Solomon. God literally specifically says that the king is not supposed to have a lot of gold and a lot of silver. Was God trying to be hypocritical there? Because he says that the king should not have a lot of gold and a lot of silver and a lot of valuables like that. And then he turns around and gives Solomon all of that. A lot of horses, a lot of wives, a lot of everything that he said not to give Well, what God gave Solomon was wisdom. And all that stuff. Yes, true, but... Think about it like this. If God gives you a million-dollar check, what would you do with it? Would you spend it all on yourself? Or would you say, okay, God has given me this for a reason. How should I use this to bless others? I don't know. I'd probably just be like, write this cover. True. But I think, yes, God did give Solomon a lot of wealth. But the goal was not so that Solomon would exalt himself. And show off right, his riches to um, the queen of, of Sheba, which he did. He was not supposed to get a lot of wives, which he did. He was not supposed to oppress his fellow Israelites, which he did. Uh, he enslaved them. In a lot of ways, Solomon was one of Israel's greatest kings. And in a lot of ways, he was human and sinful and broken. And followed the patterns of the kings of the world. So what really sets them apart, I think, is they're supposed to look different, right? They're supposed to act differently because they were specifically ordained for a purpose, right? And I think that's that purpose is to rule over God's people, right? They are, all kings have been put in place by God, but they aren't officers in the same way that a prophet and a priest are officers. The kings of Israel are officers, over God's people, which means there is a special purpose for the kings of Israel that is separate from the kings of the world. They're doing something differently. So while the the priests, right, they show God's love and mercy to God's people, the prophets, they teach God's word and deliver God's message to the people, the kings were to show God's dominion and authority to his people. So how do they how do they exercise God's dominion and authority specifically right with Israel? In other words, how do they model God? Right. Yeah. Yeah, they were to lead godly lives, and when they didn't lead godly lives, all of Israel would follow. What else? 
and rule justly. Mm -hmm. But even take that even a step further. Because think of it like this. Do you, do you punish your kids or do you discipline your kids? I've done both. Okay. <laughs> Should you? You know, you got, can't miss that compassion of God, too, in, that's in that position. The king's rulers should have compassion for their children. Compassion is one way to put it, but it, I think it's actually different goals. The goal of earthly kings is to punish... Sorry, Charlie? I was just going to add on what you were saying. What you were saying is that the kings are um, sort of the embodiment of God's justice, which something that would be underneath that no would be his aggression, his holy violence against sin. And so when God's people run after idols and all of these various things, it is they that are supposed to bring punishment, like discipline obviously has multiple forms but punishment is just one aspect of discipline right? and if the king, it's the king's job to enact that over the nation to make that hard decision, do that hard thing okay let's, let's pull it back to the family again right, your, your kid is just messed up there's a difference between simply giving a punishment and disciplining your kid I think it's, it's a different goal. Right? Punishment is simply, you, you messed up, you know, and that's it. That's what, because that's what the government is supposed to do when someone breaks the law. If you're a murderer, you get executed. There's no correction. There's no goal of repentance. There's no goal of shaping. Because that's discipline. So when... A lot of the civil laws for Israel were... Exactly, for Israel. That's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at is that earthly kings punish, but Israelite kings were actually doing discipline. It was corrective and shaping. It was to shape the people to be more like God. Because that's a special goal of an office, right? A prophet. He is to shape God's people and their minds and what is true. A priest is to shape God's people and their hearts to love God and to know what it is, what... It means to love as God has loved you. A king is to shape God's people and their lives, to lead lives of godliness, to shape that. So their, their goal is, is even more so than just punishing the wicked, but to actually discipline Israel, to draw them back to the right path, to correct them and shape them, to be more like God. So when idolatry springs up, right, the kings don't just go and kill all the idolaters. They destroy all of the altars and they reinstitute proper worship. Right? They pull the people back to God. And sometimes, yeah, that means you gotta kill all the Baal worshippers, you gotta kill all the Baal priests. But there's still a, a goal of bringing the people of God back to the Lord, back to what is right, and to walk before God in godliness. That's what I'm trying to get at. John, do you have something to add? One of the things they were rebuked for mostly was um, not going to God not teaching the people to go to God first. Now, David was a great example of that, where he would um, ask God, Are, am I to go against this people? Will you give us a victory? And that was an example of the people how to pray, essentially. And psalms were a lot of prayers. 
that. Yeah. And that's what the king was supposed to do different than a typical. Yeah. Yeah, David was an example of what does it mean to live a godly life and when you mess up, how to repent. Psalm 51 is one of the greatest psalms of repentance and best ones that we have because it's, it's here's what it looks like to, to godly, to turn and to repent in a godly way, right? To turn back to the Lord. Charlie, does that make sense? Okay. Are there any other questions about that or... Concerns, comments? Okay, so in what ways did the Israelite kings go wrong? Just trying to be like the world. Okay, trying to be like the world. But specifically, right, how, how did they use their office when they were going wrong? Yeah, they used it to oppress the people. John? I think uh, Saul's greatest mistake was that he feared the people. A leader's not to fear the people, he's to fear God. And that's where he messed up. Because he didn't wait for Samuel, because he was afraid of the people. He didn't he allowed them to take sheep and goats and gold and things mm-hmm. that they were supposed to take because he was afraid of the people. Yeah. It's a good point. Yeah. Yeah, Saul didn't fear the Lord. First, he feared the people. So he led them into sin. Jonathan? There was the Bathsheba. Yep. David and Bathsheba. Yeah, that was a that was an incident, all right. Charlie? Yeah. And then he went to his buddies, and they were like, oh, no, double down. Yeah. Yeah, don't listen to those old guys. And, uh, and he paid the price for it. Yeah. yeah I think that was, was that Rehoboam? Rehoboam. Yeah. yeah. Rehoboam, he listened to all his, his drinking buddies, and they said, oh, yeah, make them suffer. And he was like, that sounds good. More money in my pocket. And so that's what he did. And then the kingdom was split in two. Yeah, one of the worst events in Israel's history. Um yeah, exalting themselves over the people, oppressing the people, uh, using their office for personal gain, right, in order to gain stature and power and, and wealth and to use it to get respect so that people would bow down to them and worship them and serve them. All these things are ways that they have a, they misused, misused the office. So it shouldn't surprise us too much to learn that When we come to the New Testament, the commandments that God gave to kings are echoed in the commands to elders in the church. That even as kings were not to use their power and station for wealth and personal gain and to oppress the people, Peter says to elders, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when they do this, he says later, 
he makes this connection that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So as Brett says in, in his book, the elders are promised a kingly reward if they humbly and faithfully serve God's people. That there's a, a relationship, a deep connection between the kings of Israel and the elders in the church. Because the church is not supposed to look like the nations. Things are going to work differently in here. Our leaders are going to work differently. They're not going to pursue gain. They're not serving in order to advance themselves or to gain power or money or respect. They are to serve. They are to be the examples of God's dominion and authority in your lives. They are to discipline you, to shape you, to mold you to be more like Christ. That's the goal of the elders because they are under shepherds. Right? They are... They are simply under-shepherds of the chief shepherd. That Jesus, as our king, his authority and dominion, this is where you see it best in the church. Through his officers, through his his elders. Um, Because he is the king. King of the world. But he has a special place in his heart for his people. Right? Because you are his treasured possession among the earth. And so he is going to rule over you in a different way. And you are to look differently than the nations. Because you are ruled over by God, by Christ. Because he's the king, right? And so the, the larger catechism says this. How does Christ execute the office of king? He executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself. And giving them officers laws and censures by which he visibly governs them and bestowing saving grace upon his elect, rewarding their obedience and disciplining them for their sins, preserving and supporting them under all their temptations and sufferings, restraining and overcoming all their enemies, powerfully ordering all things for his own glory and for their good, and in taking vengeance on the rest who know not God and obey not the gospel. Jesus is a king who rules over his people. He protects them from outside threats and from inside threats. He's the one who makes the laws. He's the one who delegates authority to the elders. And he's the one who disciplines you. Not to punish you, right? Not to make you feel bad for your sin, but to correct you. To give you strength under temptation and under sufferings. Because he's restrained your enemies. He has won the victory. And now we get to live out that victory, joyfully following our Lord and submitting to our King. Are there any questions or things that you just really want to say? Okay. Well, next week we'll talk about something. And I'll let you know what it is next week. Um, but let's, uh, let's pray and get ready for worship. Father in heaven, we thank you for your rule. You are a good king. You are not a king who exalts himself over his subjects. You're a king who lowered himself to be like his subjects. You gave up your glory in heaven to become a man like us, Lord Jesus, so that you would know what it is to be tempted so that you would be able to walk the road for us, to earn salvation for our behalf, to defeat our enemies. And we thank you. Please help us to surrender and submit to your rule, to surrender to uh, the means of grace as you discipline us, as you correct us, as you shape us to be more like you. 
Help us, Lord, to trust that you are a good king. To not look like the world, but to joyfully live free of our sin. Lord, we pray that you would bless us as we come to worship you this morning as well. That our worship might be shaped by the Spirit to be beautiful in your eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.